as Pastor Aaron prepares to come and lead us into this next little section in the book of Judges that we'll be digging into today, um, our illustrious friend, our wise sage, Pastor Doug, will be coming to read the primary passage for us today, which is in Judges 7, verses 16 through 21. God's word to us. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and emptied jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me, and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp, and shout, For the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp. At the beginning of the middle watch, and when they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hand the torches, and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. Thanks, Pastor Doug. Good morning, church family. How are we doing today? Good? Uh, Despite being hailed on this morning, as many of you are walking in, uh, I'm doing pretty well, uh, doing pretty good as well. I'm Aaron, for those of you who have not yet met. I'm one of the pastors here. And for the last few months, we've been walking through the Old Testament book of Judges. Uh, The book of Judges recounts a time period in the history of the people of God when there was no king. And there's a lot of leadership chaos, a lot of people trying lots of different things, some successfully, some failing, but the consistent thing always being God's grace on his people. And we find ourselves now in week three, looking at the life of Gideon. Gideon is arguably uh, the most important judge in the book of Judges, uh, maybe second only to Samson, who we'll get to in a few months. And so we're looking at his his crowning moment, his, his good moment. I, I, I hate to break it to you. Many of you who are raised in church, you don't realize that the story of Gideon doesn't end with this victorious celebration. Gideon's life ends in an absolute train wreck, and so we'll study that next week. But today is a happy one, and so we'll be in Judges uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 23, if you have your Bibles and want to read along. What I'd like to do first before anything else, let me pray. And let's ask God to do what he wants to do in our hearts and our minds here today. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. Um, God, I thank you that these stories we read of things that happened uh, so many thousands of years ago, I'm thankful, God, that, that these stories are not just tales of morality or something to inspire us, but God, you actually send your Holy Spirit to do work in our hearts and our lives when we read the scriptures aloud, when we devote ourselves to their teaching. And so God, my prayer is uh, like the psalmist, would you open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word? God, I pray that you would guard my lips, help me to only teach that which is in line with the truth of your word. And God, for everyone here today, um, would you give us soft hearts? Would you give us teachable hearts Uh, that we might be transformed, that we might grow, that we might be different people than we were when we walked in today. I pray above anything else, would you help our focus to be on Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. And everyone said, amen. You know, this, this story of, of Gideon, if you're not familiar with the story, you should know it's, it's a bit of an underdog story. Uh, you already saw the, the number when, when Pastor Doug was reading the scripture. There's only 300 men. They're going up against a much bigger army. This is maybe, other than David and Goliath, maybe the most David and Goliath type of story in the Bible. And I actually think we like David and Goliath underdog stories, do we not? I mean, think about how many movies there are out there of the scrappy underdogs taking on the man and coming out victorious, right? Any, any fans of the movie Braveheart here this morning? Any fans of Star Wars, right? You got the great hero Luke Skywalker rising up against the evil empire and taking him down. Uh, we, we like this in sports, don't we? We like, you know, the miracle on ice or uh, the, what's the, what's the football one? Rudy. So I guess somebody texted me after the first uh, service, bad news bears. I've never seen that, but 
but apparently that's an underdog story as well, right? What about movies about sports, right? Mighty Ducks, any 90s kids in here today, right? Uh, or or um, Major League, you know, if you, if you uh, remember that series of movies, or, or perhaps the greatest underdog sports movie of all time, Cool Runnings, the Jamaican bobsled team, right? <laughs> I mean, we, we love these stories. We love it in film. We love it in uh, military history. We love it in sports. And, and I'm convinced that it's because God has actually built that into the fabric of the universe. God has imprinted deep within the human soul a desire to see victory come through an upset, for, for triumph to come through what appears to be weakness, One uh, Bible scholar, one commentator, Gary Enrig, says about this story that we're about to read about Gideon. He says, of all of the upsets celebrated by military historians or sports fans, none is more astonishing than the one God accomplished through Gideon. Outnumbered about 450 to 1, Gideon's army won a crushing victory over the powerful hosts of Midian. If a football team composed of junior high school girls were to challenge the Super Bowl champions and defeat them 49-0, you would have an approximation of Gideon's victory. So just let that word picture live in your mind today, okay? We're about to study an incredible victory and one that God alone gets the credit for. And that's really the big idea of where we're going today. The big idea is this. God doesn't call heroes. He calls servants. And his greatest salvation comes through weakness. God doesn't call heroes. He calls servants. God's the one who gets the credit. And his greatest victory comes through weakness. So let's go back to uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Again, read along if you got your Bible, if you got your app. Otherwise, you can follow along on the screen. Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, that's his, his nickname that he got given last week. It means the one who fights with Baal, the one who contends with Baal. Uh, you'll remember he got that nickname after he tore down the, the statues of Baal in the middle of the night. Kind of scared, but he still did what God told him to do. So that's Gideon. He and all the people who were with him rose early. He had, he had rallied the army. He went throughout the whole countryside, said, we're going to take on Midian. This, this group of people that keeps coming in year after year, stealing our food, stealing our crops, you know, wiping us out, decimating us. It's time. It's time to go. So he gets the whole group of people who were with him. They got up early in the morning and they encamped beside the spring of Harad. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Molech in the valley. So they're kind of on this hill and they're looking over this monstrous army. It's going to tell us later, it's 135,000 soldiers. It says the camels are so many like sand on the seashore, you couldn't even count them. So they're kind of up on this hillside overlooking this huge army. Then the Lord said to Gideon, and I love this, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Why? Because Israel might boast over me saying, my own hand has saved me. So therefore proclaim in the ears of the people saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away. I love that phrase. It's like, let whoever's scared go run on home to their mama. Like it's kind of, kind of got that. Like hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people left and 10,000 remains. So just imagine for a moment that you're one of Gideon's like captains. You're in charge of a group of men and Gideon, the great leader stands up. He's going to rally the troops, says, all right, everyone listen to me. If you're scared, why don't you run on home to your mamas? And then like two thirds of your crew just leaves, right? Like you'd feel demoralized if that happened at a, you know, pickup softball game you were playing, much less going to war against a massive army, uh, one that is much superior to you. But what's the reason behind it? Why does God do this? Why does God say, hey, we can't have this many people. We can't have 32,000. We need to get it down. We need to get down to 10,000. What does God say? God says the, the real problem is that you have so many men you might be tempted to think that you won the victory. See, the great problem of the people of Israel was not that they were uh, enslaved to the Midianites. The real problem of the people of Israel is that they were enslaved to idolatry and to sin. They didn't worship the one true God. They didn't remain faithful to the one true God and their hearts were prone to pride. And so God says, "I, I need to show them 
the real issue, the real problem, and I need to show them that I alone am the solution, which brings me to my first point that I want to draw out of this passage today is this. God does not share his glory. God does not share his glory. Now, for some of you, you might think, well, why is God so petty? Why is God like this? Why won't he share his glory? Well, listen, let me, let me explain. First of all, there's different types of glory. The Bible in places like 1 Corinthians 15 talks about how there's one type of glory for the sun and one type of glory for the moon and one type of glory for men and one type of glory for women. There's, there's different types of glory. And God alone has the type of glory that is self-causing. We as men and women, God, the, the Bible says we're created in his image and likeness, and we do have a type of glory. But our glory is like that of the moon when compared to the sun. The moon only has glory. The moon only shines because the sun shines on it. Or at least that's what my fifth grade science teachers told me, right? If, if you take away the sun, the moon has no glory. If you take away God, we don't have glory. Our glory is dependent upon his and, and when we use the word glory, it's not a particularly common word in our culture, uh, but we do use it at times, particularly in sports or maybe even in military, right? Some guy does some amazing play. You know, he, he tips away the football in the end zone and they win the game. They get to go to the championship or whatever. And they say, that's his moment of glory. You did something amazing. You did something uh, praiseworthy. You did something spectacular, we also could use the word uh, glory kind of like uh, who gets the credit for something. We also could use the word glory uh, in relation to the word fame. If somebody is famous, they have a type of glory. But did you know in the Bible, the word for glory is most closely related to the word heavy. It's weighty. So when we talk about God being glorious, that God has glory. We're talking about that God has, uh, you can almost use the word gravitas. There's a weight, there's a heaviness, there's a seriousness. When, 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 when God speaks, we should be silent and we should listen. You see flashes of that sometimes with people. H have any of you ever been in a situation where um, somebody kind of famous or somebody important or somebody powerful walks into the room and everyone else just kind of defers to them? You ever seen that? Uh, I had one opportunity, I'll share this story with you. I had an opportunity to perform some music one time at an event where former President George Bush was. And it was, um, it was a military benefit for, for soldiers. So it's just soldiers everywhere, military guys everywhere. And for those of you who haven't been around a lot of soldiers, there's a lot of kind of tough guy stuff going on, right? And there's comparing ranks, and a lot of kind of chess, and nobody was like doing push-ups or anything right there, but it's just kind of a tough guy sort of a, an environment. And then President George W. Bush walked in and all those tough guys, you just could see him kind of take a step back. That's the commander in chief. That's just a glimpse of the type of glory, the type of weightiness that God has. And let me tell you this. The reason why God does not share his glory is because the weightiness of the glory that belongs to God will crush you and I. We were not built to sustain that. We were not made to bear the weight of God's glory. The, the Bible would say that God's glory is most on display when he saves people. We're going to get to the cross later. The, the greatest display of God's glory is the cross of Jesus. When, when God saves us from our sin, there's only one person who could bear that type of glory, and it's God himself. But even in this story, where we're looking at this, this group of ragtag soldiers, this, this group of kind of uh, hodgepodge Israelite soldiers, God is saying, you can't bear this glory of salvation. I can't let you rob me of the credit that's due because it will crush you. So friends, when we say that, that God doesn't share his glory, we need, to, we need to be thankful for that. We need to rejoice. That's God's grace upon us to not allow us to steal glory that belongs to him. So now there's this, this first cut has happened. And there's a second cut. Verse, verse four. The Lord said to Gideon, ah, the people are still too many. 10,000 is too much. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you. There, and anyone of whom I say this one shall go, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So God says, let's go down to the water. I'm going to do a test. And we're going to divide the people 
even further. So he brought the people down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, okay, here's what we're going to do. Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you need to set him by himself because they're unique. Likewise, <laughs> likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink, you're going to set them aside. And so the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to the mouth was 300 men, but all of the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. Okay, you got to just picture this scene, right? You got one group of people that's like just face plunged into the river and they're, they're drinking. And you got another group of people that are like scooping water, but you know, like that kind of a thing, right? And God said, separate them out. Now, how are we going to choose? You got a very special group of guys over here, and only 300 of them. The Lord said to Gideon, hey, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to their home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets. Apparently they were planning on having like a jamboree later on. And he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now, if you grew up in church as I did, here in this story, sometimes you hear explanations given for why God chose the men who lapped with their tongues like a dog. And usually there's kind of one of three uh, examples or, or explanations given. The first one is they say, well, the men who lapped with their tongues, they were, they were more alert. They scooped up water to their face. They're keeping their eyes out looking for the enemy. And yes, they look ridiculous they're like that, but they're, but they're the ones you want because they got their eyes looking out. Okay, that's one possible explanation. Other people say like, no, the kneelers were probably the better people. They're more alert. The people who are lapping with their tongues like a dog, uh, I don't know if you know this, but in the biblical world, being compared to a dog is not a good thing. Like in our culture, in our society, in, in, in the more modern eras, you know, dogs are man's best friend. I still don't know why, okay? Dogs steal your food. They shed all over your house. They slobber on you. They stink. They, you know, go to the bathroom in your house. And yet we just keep trying and bringing them a man's best friend. Like, no, you know what my best friend would be? Like a cheeseburger. I can get along with a cheeseburger. I've, I've totally gone off point. But the point is this. Being compared to a dog in this time period is not a good thing. It'd be like comparing you to a pigeon. Like anyone who, you know, pecks the seed like a pigeon, you want that? Like, no, it's ridiculous, right? It's just dumb. So what some scholars say is God is intentionally, I know, I'm sorry, I'll fix that sometime for the next year. God is saying there's this ridiculous group of people that they're compared to dogs. I want the dogs. I don't want the, I don't want the normal people. I want the misfits. And then others come in and say, there's not any real reason necessarily, no specific reason behind it. God is just simply delineating between two groups of people. And he says, I want the smaller group. Barry uh, uh, Webb, one Bible commentator, says this. The fact is that we simply don't know why those who lapped were preferred over those who kneeled and scooped with their hands. But here's what we do know. We do know that Gideon's force was reduced to a mere 300 to exclude any possibility that the coming victory could be interpreted as their own achievement. So whatever the specific mechanism, whether you think that God is choosing the better crew, whether you think that God is choosing the crew of weirdos, the point still remains that God says, I'm al I alone am going to get the credit. And he brings me to my second point that I want to make this morning is this. You're not too small for God to use, but you can be too big. Okay? The way of the world, the way of our culture is that whoever's powerful, charismatic, smart, rich, good-looking. Those are the people that get ahead. Those are the people that get chosen. Those are the people that get picked for the softball team. Those are the people that get picked for the best-paying jobs. Those are the people that get into the special programs at colleges and universities and graduate schools. The, the way of the world is that talent and ability and good looks and strength, that's who gets ahead. But in the economy of the kingdom of God, Jesus said some things that were pretty backwards, didn't he? Jesus said some things like, if you want to be the greatest You've got to be the servant of all and the least of all. He said that in Mark chapter 9. In Hebrews, you know, there's this great list of all of these heroes of the faith and, you know, Samson and David and all these people. And then he says, those who had strength out of weakness. Listen, there are examples in the Bible of God using people who are smart, rich, good-looking, talented, etc., 
But there are many, many more examples of those people that have those, what the world would deem as values and strengths of, of God not using them. God using what's foolish or weak in the eyes of the world for his purposes. Never, never in the scriptures, never, do we see God saying, chastising someone, you know what, you're just too humble. I can't use you. You're just too confident in my strength and not your own. I can't use you. We don't see that anywhere. But throughout the pages of the scripture, we see plenty of examples of God saying to people, you're too pride, prideful. You're too confident in your own strength. Sometimes in our lives, whether it's in ministry, sometimes it's work, sometimes it's relationships, whatever, we look at the people around us and we compare ourselves to others. You come here on a, a Sunday morning, uh, I'm not talented like these musicians who are playing up there, or, I'm not good at public speaking like you know, one of the pastors is, or I'm not really good at working with kids like the people that serve in the children's ministry. What could I possibly do? How could I possibly serve? But we neglect the fact that what God says is more true than our circumstances, isn't it? Some of you, uh, I, think, I think the pull of our, of our world, the pull of our culture is always towards being great in yourself. And some of you need to remember that in the economy of the kingdom of God, it's an upside down kingdom. And Jesus says, whoever's last shall be first. Whoever is the servant shall be the greatest. Some of you have convinced yourself, I can't be of any use or any value to the kingdom of God. I'm just too small. I'm too weak. I'm not powerful enough. I'm not smart enough. And I would just simply say to you, you're the exact type of people that God delights in using because he likes to show his glory, his power, his strength through our weakness. Amen? So you you can't be too small for God to use, but you can be too big. All right, verse 9. Uh, God begins to speak to Gideon again. That same night, the Lord said to him, arise, go down against the camp, for I've given it into your hand. God says, it's go time. It's time to get your soldiers, get ready. We're We're going to war. But, verse 10, if you are afraid to go down. Now, why would God say that about Gideon? If you've been here for the last two weeks, you know Gideon is a man who is full of fear and doubts and insecurities. If you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you're going to hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. Gideon says, that sounds good. I need that little help. I need that reassurance. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east, that's the whole kind of coalition that they had gotten together, lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. It's just not reassuring. You ever think maybe Gideon was like, hey God, like, are you sure about this plan? I thought you were trying to assure me, but this is a really massive army and I'm kind of terrified now. When Gideon came, though, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. Apparently, Russia had joined the coalition as well. And he said, he's listening to this guy, he says, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. Uh, By the way, barley bread... Barley is the food of the poor. So here, this guy's having a dream about bread, a big loaf of bread, just rolling into the, rolling into the camp and knocking the tent over. But it's not just any bread, it's barley bread. The comrade answered, he's a, he's a, he's a prophet. This guy's going to speak the divine interpretation of this dream. This pagan, foreign, godless guy says, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, not some other Gideon, the one, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all of the camp. 
So here, so there could be no misinterpretation. That loaf of barley bread that just rolls into camp is the poor Gideon representing the poor impoverished Israel. And by the way, we're all going to be destroyed. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. Yeah, no duh. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Here he is, like for the first time in the story, we see him. He's confident. He's assured. He's like, let's make like a loaf of barley and roll. Like, let's do this, right? He goes back and wakes everybody up, says, it's time to go. Here, here's, here's what I love about our God. We can see the character of our God on display in the story. And it's this, God is the great reassurer. He is the great comforter. Now listen, when you're a a, a person who follows God, when you're a Christian, when you're someone who's been saved by Jesus, uh, Old Testament, New Testament, we see all of these pictures where God calls people into scary situations. God calls us out beyond our abilities. God calls us out beyond our means. He, He invites us to step out in faith where we don't feel strong. We don't feel confident. We don't feel comfortable. To follow God is to have one perpetual experience after another of being made uncomfortable. Is it not? However, that's, that's only one part of it because throughout the scriptures, We see time and time again that God does not just call us out into uncomfortable situations. He says, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to strengthen you. I'm going to comfort you. I'm going to encourage you. Here God gives Gideon this great reassurance. He's called him into a situation where he feels completely in over his head. And yet God throughout, how many times have we seen it? God, God, um, gives him the miracle when the angel of the Lord comes and touches the food with the, the stick and it all goes up in flames like a, like a Benihana sort of miracle. And then you've got the, the fleece being dry and the ground being wet and the fleece being wet and the ground being dry. And then we've got this, this dream that God just keeps reassuring Gideon over and over again, doesn't he? And I love that about our God. Yes, he calls us into situations that are beyond us, but he reassures us constantly. How, how does God reassure us? Let me just briefly list out some ways that God reassures us. First of all, it's through the scriptures, through the stories, the, the written account, the words of God. When we have hearts that are fearful, when we have hearts that are uh, uncertain and untrusting, we can go to the word of God. And God, uh, these are not just empty words written on a page. These are the very words of life. God, God says in the Bible that, that his word is living and active, We can be reminded, yeah, I feel uncertain. I feel uncomfortable, but I can go and I can read these stories over and over and over and over and over again when God was faithful to his people. God reassures us through uh, the Lord's table. When we gather together every week and we celebrate with with the the bread and with with the cup, it's not just a memorial. Yes, it is a memorial, but it's not just a memorial. There's something divine. There's something supernatural that takes place where God actually ministers his grace to us. We come week after week after week being reminded of the death of Jesus and his resurrection. And and when we eat of the bread and drink of the cup, we're nourished and we're fed, not physically, but spiritually. We're reassured through the spiritual disciplines. Things like prayer and fasting and taking time of of solitude or singing together. God reassures our hearts through the practice of those spiritual disciplines. I've I've known many people who have done um, things like a prolonged period of fasting And God showed them just how strong he is even when they felt incredibly weak from not eating food for an extended period of time. God reassures us through his people. I'm so thankful for community. I'm thankful for relationships. How many of you have ever had an experience where you felt weak or fearful or incompetent and someone showed up just at the right time with the right word of encouragement? You ever had that experience happen in your life? Have you ever been the person that gets to give the word of encouragement? Such a joy. Sometimes you have that experience where like you see something in somebody else that they can't see for themselves. That's why God has us in relationship, in community. Sometimes God reassures us just directly through his Holy Spirit within us. The Bible says when, when you become a Christian, when you confess your sins and trust in Jesus, that, that the Holy Spirit actually takes up residence in you. And sometimes we're wrestling with fear, we're wrestling with doubt, and God just... God just does something where you all of a sudden have this overwhelming sense of peace. You have this overwhelming sense of comfort and confidence. And lastly, sometimes God reassures us just through circumstances. I I think that's what's happening with Gideon. 
hey, Gideon, go down to the camp. And he overhears this guy telling his, his buddy about a dream he had. And all of a sudden, Gideon hears this, this dream. It's just life circumstances. And he goes back up to the camp and says, let's do this. Friends, again, I, I want you to know, there is much in the Christian life that will make you uncomfortable. Because again, our natural tendency is to try to rely upon our own strength, but God wants to teach us to rely upon his strength in everything. But when he calls us out, he'll never call us somewhere that he himself won't go with us. He goes before us. He goes behind us. He goes beside us. He goes above us. He goes within us. Our God loves, he delights in comforting and reassuring us. Amen? All right, verse 16. Here we go. It's time to fight. He divided the 300 men into three companies. So three groups, uh, I'm guessing about 100 men each. And put, that was a joke. I, I actually can do that math. That's fine. And he put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. Now, if I was setting up a battle, I would have probably wanted to put swords in their hands, but no, musical instruments. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me... Then you guys, you blow the trumpets also on every side of the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Just so we're clear, this battle plan is ridiculous. This is absurd. There's not a weapon mentioned here. One commentator, Daniel Block, says this, like Yahweh's instructions to Joshua before storming of Jericho, the strategy appears totally absurd. Gideon's division of his forces into three companies of 100 men each that follows traditional military custom to be sure, but to face the vast hosts of Midian armed only with trumpets and empty jars with torches hidden inside is ridiculous. Obviously, the outcome of this battle will not be determined by conventional standards of warfare. Verse 19. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, so around midnight, just when they had set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hand the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Now listen, listen, every man... Every one of these Israelite soldiers stood in his place around the camp and all of the enemy army ran. Okay, some of you, have you ever seen those videos on like Facebook going around where people wake other people up in really mean ways? I have to confess, I love those. I think they are brilliant. And I, it's a very sinful part of me that God is still working out. But, but I saw one once where they like woke up a guy, they literally blew off a cannon inside of his bedroom and the guy like jumped out of his skin I know, I know. I'm not going to try it or anything. I just saying, I saw it. It's kind of like that. It's the middle of the night. This whole army is sleeping and all of a sudden they're awoken to, of all things, people just blasting trumpets. And these are not just any, you know, brass trumpets. These are like ram's horns, which you've ever seen them. They are stinking loud. And they wake up and they're in their tents and all they can see is fire all around them. And so they start attacking and killing each other. Israel's army just stands there. Like, I could do that. I could be on that army. They blew the trumpets. The Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. So they wake up. They don't know who's who. They don't know what's what. They start killing each other. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerah, uh, as Zerah, as far as the border of Abel Mehalah by, t- by Tabith. Just go quickly and get through them. As the, and the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and Asher and from all of Manasseh. And then they started pursuing Midian. They start running after them. And we'll see the, the, uh, the outcome of that chase next week. But for today, just know that this is the most absurd battle plan and is the most crushing victory. 300 guys who didn't even lift a finger in actual combat. The guys just started fighting amongst themselves. Carolyn Pressler, one commentator, puts it this way. The storytellers make sure that their audience understands God and God alone gives the victory. The radically reduced group of Israelite warriors does not lift a weapon in the initial assault against the enemy camp. 
The trumpets and shouts of Gideon's troops, again, recall the battle of Jericho. And as at Jericho, the initial assault succeeds without any military activity on Israel's part. The story sends a strong message. Trust in the divine warrior who is able to give victory regardless of how impossible it might seem. Is our God awesome or what? Now, here's what I love about this story. This story has a shape. This story has kind of a, of a narrowing sort of a shape. At the beginning of the story, there was 32,000 men. And we think, okay, salvation, freedom, victory is going to come through the 32,000 men. Nope, God whittles it down to 10,000. Nope, God, God whittles it down to 300. Nope, now they're groups of 100. And at the end, there's only one person who actually gets the glory for the victory. Who is it? It's God himself. And what I love about the story is if, if you zoom out, it's the same trajectory of the gospel itself, is it not? Think about the story of the Bible, the, the big picture story of the Bible. See, in the, in, the, in the beginning, God created man and woman in the garden, but they rebelled against God. And they sinned. And the, the whole human race was plunged into brokenness and sin. And, and so there starts to be this question, who's, who's going to save us? Who's going to rescue us? We're in bondage and we need someone to help us. And so God says to a man named Abraham, he says, Abraham, I'm going to use your descendants to redeem the world. I'm going to use your offspring. You're going to have as many offspring as there are stars in the sky and grains of sand on the beach. He says, I'm going to use Israel, the nation of Israel, the, this chosen people. I'm going to use Israel to save the world. When you keep reading the story of the Old Testament and Israel failed to live up to their God-given calling. And in fact, um, the 12 tribes of Israel, they ended up having civil war and breaking apart. And, and the, the northern tribes of Israel were particularly rebellious. The southern tribe, though, you think, oh, Judah, they're, they're going to do better. There's this tribe of Judah, and, and maybe, maybe they're going to be the ones that are faithful to God and, and rescue and redeem the world. But you keep reading, they don't, they don't do much better. And then God makes a promise to a man named David. He says, David, from your line, one of your descendants is always going to sit on the throne and I'm going to use one of your offspring to, to redeem the world. And so you think, okay, maybe it's the family of David. It's King David's family. It just keeps getting this narrower and narrower group of people. Well, King David's family, I mean, I don't, you know the story of David. He didn't do so hot. His family didn't do so hot. Eventually God said, all right, you're, you're going away into exile. I'm, I'm removing you from the promised land that I gave to you. And sending you into exile. Well, this, this small group, this, this remnant, maybe they're going to be the ones. They're going to move back to Jerusalem and they're going to rebuild the city and rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple. And maybe salvation is going to come through this, this remnant. And then you read in the prophets who are, who are speaking and writing during this time, like, no, actually there's one anointed one. There's the anointed one, the Messiah. He's the only one that's going to be able to save and redeem the world. Friends, this is not a trick answer. Who are we talking about? Jesus. Hey, the Sunday school answer in this case actually applies. Yes, the whole focus of the Old Testament is narrowing down the options. Who, who's going to rescue us? Who's going to redeem us? It can only be Jesus. Jesus shows up on the scene. He starts preaching. He starts casting out demons. He starts healing the sick. He starts talking about how to have right relationship with God, restored relationship with the Father. One of his disciples says, hey, how can, we, how can we know the Father? How can we get to the Father? You need to show us the way. And Jesus says famously in John 14, Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. And then he says this, this very exclusive claim, no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said other things like, I am the gate for the sheep. If the sheep want to come in where it's safe, where it's protected, if they want to come into the fold, they have to come through me. I'm the gate. I'm the door. The, the, after the ministry of Jesus, his earthly ministry, he dies, he rises again. These apostles start going out and start telling everybody about Jesus. Men like Peter in Acts 4 stand up and preach a sermon. They say, hey friends, you need to know there's salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The apostle Peter picked right up on that, acclaim, that claim of exclusivity that Jesus said. He said, you gotta, you gotta come to Jesus. He's the only one. Our hope is not in a group or a tribe or a family lineage. Our hope is only found in Jesus. 
The apostle Paul even later writes in 1 Timothy 2, there is one God and one mediator, one go between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Friends, you need to understand that in our culture, there's a great claim that something along the lines of all roads eventually lead to God. And that's fine if people want to make that claim. The problem is you just can't lump Jesus or the teaching of the Bible in with that claim. Actually, um, it's that, that particular claim has kind of had its day in terms of um, claiming that that's uh, a tenable position to hold. I have seen not one, but multiple atheists, secular professors, people who don't believe in God, people who don't believe in the Bible saying, yeah, you cannot put Jesus in that category of saying that all paths lead to God. The claims of Jesus are incredibly exclusive. But as you can see here in this verse in 1 Timothy 2, the invitation is incredibly inclusive. Who's invited? All. Who can get in on this? Anyone. Some people mistakenly think that God only calls people who are good enough. And I would say that the exact opposite is true. God only calls people who aren't good enough. That this invitation is not for a select few. This invitation is not for those who have kind of gotten themselves washed up and cleaned up and are good enough to come to God. That that Jesus says, I am the door. I'm the only way, but you are welcome to come through if you will admit that you need my grace. You need my help. That you need my strength. You need my power. We like Gideon and this army, are incredibly weak. The task of of being saved, the task of being forgiven, is outside of our power and ability. We need a miracle. We need something miraculous to help us. We need something that's completely outside of our ability to do, which is why the gospel is so beautiful. The gospel is so beautiful because it's the most ridiculous thing ever. It really is. Think about it. Okay, we we saw that this this story of of God using Gideon and this scrappy ragtag band of 300 men to defeat this massive army of Midian is, that's ridiculous. How much more ridiculous is it that God sends his son Jesus to defeat death by dying? To defeat death by dying. Hebrews chapter two says this. It says, since the children share in flesh and blood, He, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Through death to destroy death, that is the devil, and to deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. When when Jesus was nailed to the cross, the enemy thought that he was having his greatest moment of victory. Look at this. I'm, I'm, I'm killing the son of God. But what he did not realize is that in that moment of what looked like from a human perspective, a great defeat was actually the greatest victory. Because through his death on the cross, Jesus atoned for our sin. He paid the price that our sins deserve. And what's more is on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, proving that all of his claims were true. Friends, we don't serve a dead religious founder or some passed away moral leader. We serve a resurrected savior, amen? Jesus conquered over death through death. And because of that, Jesus comes to us in our weakness. Jesus comes to us in our flaws, our failures, our our shortcomings and says, trust in me. Trust in my death for your salvation. Every single world religion, every single one, teaches that salvation comes through our own efforts. There's lots of different variations, but at the end of the day, The common moral ground is you have to climb the ladder to get good enough for God. The gospel of Jesus Christ says you're not good enough to get to God. God came down the ladder to redeem and rescue us. And he identifies with us in our weakness. He accomplishes things that are beyond what we could even ask or imagine because it's his power that matters, not our own. Amen? Let me just close with this thought. You know, some of you... Some of you today, maybe you're wrestling with God a little bit. You know there's something that you're supposed to do. There's something that you're supposed to step into, something that God's calling you to do. And and you know that it's beyond your ability. 
Maybe it's a ministry thing. Maybe it's a relational thing. Maybe it's a personal goal, financial, health. I don't know what it is. But you're wrestling with God because it's outside of your ability. God, this doesn't make sense on paper. God, this, this is just beyond me. Now listen, I'm all for wisdom. I'm all for planning. And there's plenty of things in the Bible that talk about making wise plans and stuff. But at the end of the day, we serve a God that defeated 135,000 Midianite soldiers with 300 fools that drank water like this. Right? And we serve a God that conquered over Satan's sin and death through the death of his own son. Who are we to say God can't or won't use us in a particular situation? Some of you today, you're, you're not a Christian. You wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You... You're just here because you have questions. And I hope and I pray today that you would hear the clear distinction between what it truly means to follow God, what it truly means to be one of his children, what it truly means to be saved by Jesus. It's not something that you have to work up enough strength. You have to work up enough energy. You have to work up enough morality. It simply is coming, saying, I'm broken. I'm in need of grace. And letting him be strong, letting him be powerful in you and through you. I wonder if we could just pause for a moment and pray. I'll invite you to just, um, you can close your eyes if you want, but I just invite you to um, allow God to search your heart right now. God, there's, there's probably as many different applications of this as there are people in the room. And so God, I just pray right now that you would send your Holy Spirit to speak to us and to stir our hearts as you see fit. God, some of us like Gideon are are still full of fear and still full of doubt. And we need your reassurance, God. We need to know that you're with us, that you love us, that you care for us. We need to know that this season that we're facing, maybe maybe it is beyond our power and beyond our ability, but God, you, you do your finest work when we're stretched beyond what's what we're capable of. God, some here today are being compelled to take that first step of faith, to take that first step of following you. God, I pray that you would even be strong in that. God, on our own, we don't have the power to turn to you. We don't have the ability to choose you, God. And so I pray that you would put that faith into their hearts to say, God, I I have sinned. I've broken your law. I, I need rescue. I need help. I need redemption. And they would see that it comes through Christ alone and faith in him alone. God, for us as a church, corporately, I pray you'd help us, God, though we, though we are weak, we're nothing much to speak of. God, I pray that you would help us as a church to be engaged in our community, to be engaged in our neighborhoods, to be engaged in the work of the kingdom of God, not for our glory, not for our honor, but for yours, God. Things that seem too big for us. And may you alone get the glory, Jesus. Amen. Some of you need to respond. Um, obviously, we, we love people to be involved in community groups, and so I would encourage you to talk with people in your community. Some of you need to, like, say something to somebody today before you leave. And so um, I'll make myself available, the other pastors, other leaders. Uh, Pete's not out here to defend himself. The band leader, he'll, he'll talk to you. I don't know. Love to talk with you. If, if God's stirring in your heart something, please don't leave today without taking that first step of response, okay? And we're gonna go into a time of response now as we do each week. We're gonna start by um, giving of our finances as worship to God. If you're a guest or a visitor, please know you're not obligated to give. Uh, we don't want this to be uh, uncomfortable or awkward like sometimes churches have a habit of doing. We just simply wanna invite you, if you wanna give of your finances uh, to worship God, uh, we're called to do that as an act of obedience. Uh, I wanna invite you to give. And I would like to invite you to give, again, not trusting in the amount that you're giving, but trust in how God will use that, okay? Uh, we're gonna welcome our younger students class in to join us for this time of response and worship. While they're collecting the offering, let me read some questions to help us uh, as we talk about things this week in our community groups. First one is this. Have there been times in your life where God has weakened you so that you could more clearly see his power? Maybe share some of those moments of weakness in your life. And then number two, when you've experienced weakness, how has God helped you to remain faithful? And have there been times where you did not remain faithful? What lessons did you learn? I think it's important to share our our victories and our failures because if you're a normal human, I think you've probably got some of both, amen? 
Number three, how is the gospel the ultimate David versus Goliath story? Explain how Jesus' death on the cross is that ultimate surprise victory. And then number four, where in your life do you currently need reassurance from God? Where is God currently asking you to step out in faith and to trust in his strength? Share your answers with others in your community group. A couple things to pray about as well. We want to be a praying church. So pray for yourself and others about weakness and, and reassurance. Pray that God would help us to lean on his strength in our weaknesses. And number two, pray for God, praise God for his ultimate victory over evil through the death and resurrection of Jesus. In a moment, the, the volunteers are going to pass out the elements for communion as well. Uh, communion is for Christians. If you're here today and you're a guest or a visitor, um, you're welcome to join us at the table if you're a Christian. If you're someone who's not a Christian, I, w- I would just set before you two options. Number one, you could abstain and just reflect on, on why we're celebrating this, this broken body and this blood that was spilled out. Or even better, give your sin to Jesus. Trust in him. Receive his grace and then join us at the table today for the first time as a part of this family. Let me read from 1 Corinthians to, to set the stage, to set the table for what we're about to celebrate The Apostle Paul writes that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, Jesus himself, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, his death, Till he comes. So let's remember today that our faith, our salvation only comes through weakness. What the world saw as weak and the world saw as a defeat, God has used for our salvation. Let's rejoice in that today, church. Amen. And there's an invitation to examine ourselves too. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let's, let's look at our hearts. God, am I coming with pride? Am I coming with arrogance? Or am I coming knowing that I'm weak and in need of your grace. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. I'll invite our musicians to come too. They're gonna lead us in a time of singing and and as they begin uh, singing and as they begin leading us in this time of worship, I just invite you to sit, to reflect, to pray. When you're ready to eat of the bread, to drink of the cup, do so. And then I'll invite you to stand to your feet and sing with us about God meeting us in our places of fear and our places of weakness. Let's pray together and then we'll begin our time of celebrating the table and, and singing. God, I thank you. Uh, I thank you, God, that it's, it's not our great might, it's not our great power, it's not our great ability that saves us. It's your power and your might alone. And so God, I, I ask that you would right now meet each one of us where we're at. You'd reassure us where we're fearful. You'd remind us of your strength that's at work within us. You'd remind us of your power. God, I ask and pray that our time of of singing would just be full of your spirit, that we would be full of joy as we sing, worshiping the one who saved us through his death and through his resurrection. We pray all of this in Jesus' good name. And everyone said, amen.